Hello and welcome to Disastrous History. My name is Anthony, and I am the host of this wonderful mess of a show that will attempt to chronicle some of the biggest and most interesting disasters, messes, and all-around screw-ups that have happened throughout the centuries. To welcome you guys back from my two-week absence, I am releasing this episode on a Thursday instead of a Monday, and that is for a very particular reason. You see, today, Thursday, April 15th, 2021, is the two-year anniversary of the Notre Dame fire in Paris. Notre Dame de Paris, or Notre Dame, if you're from the United States, like I am, and from Indiana specifically, like I am, where we have the University of Notre Dame, so my pronunciation of the cathedral is always going to be wrong, and I will try my best, but chances are I will definitely screw it up, because French is a very confusing language for me, and I do not understand it at all, and I try my best. But anyway, Notre Dame is one of the most well-known cathedrals in the entire world. Located on Ile de la Cité, hopefully I pronounced that right, literally translated to City Island in the middle of the Seine, it is a stunning Gothic cathedral and is one of the best examples of Gothic architecture in France. Consecrated to the Virgin Mary, it is full of massive rose windows and a fine example of flying buttresses and rib vaults. We'll get into what rib vaults and flying buttresses are later. But, the site where Notre Dame now stands has been believed to be the location of a temple to Jupiter. Now, this belief stems from the Pillar of the Boatmen, which was discovered in 1710 underneath Notre Dame when they were constructing a crypt under the nave, but there has never been any further proof the temple existed. There's been theories, and it kind of hints to it on the actual Pillar of the Boatmen, but no real solid concrete archaeological proof that it existed. After the Temple to Jupiter was torn down, the location was allegedly a Christian basilica dedicated to St. Stephen. This basilica would undergo at least two transformations before being torn down in favor of Notre Dame. Construction on actual Notre Dame began in 1163. The construction was started under Maurice de Sully, the Bishop of Paris. He decided he wanted a bigger cathedral in Paris. The cornerstone was laid in 1163 by Pope Alexander III. Pope Alexander III was mostly famous for not being in Rome for most of his papacy because the Holy Roman Emperor at the time, Frederick I, was not a fan of the fact he was the leader of cardinals that had been opposed to him in years prior. So Frederick I had his own anti-pope, which I want to take a little sidebar here. The idea of a pope and an anti-pope at the same time is awesome. I wish we still did that. That would be super cool. Anyway, King Louis VII was a fan of old Alexander III and let him stay in France for a while, which is why he was there to lay the cornerstone to Notre Dame. Pope Alexander III was also famous for supporting Thomas Beckett, the guy who was more or less famous for being murdered because he didn't like that the King of England was coronated somewhere that wasn't Canterbury. Anyway, construction on the cathedral would be ongoing for basically ever. It never really stopped, and as we'll see later on in this episode, it's going to continue for a while. But primary construction ended around the mid-13th century. The last parts of the cathedral to be built were the towers on the west end of the building. And now would be a good time to talk about the flying buttresses and the rib vaults. 
A flying buttress is an arch that attaches to the top of a load-bearing wall, then arches over to a secondary wall, then down to the ground. Flying buttresses work by transferring the load of the ceiling sitting on a load-bearing wall out away from the load wall. So basically, you have the ceiling that comes down, and it's pushing out on the top of the load-bearing wall. The flying buttress takes that load and continues to transfer out away from the top of that down to a lower wall to, in order to decrease the load on the interior load-bearing wall. This allows for more windows to be placed in that load-bearing wall so that it doesn't have to be as sturdy and some of the load is taking off of it, taken off of that wall. Excuse me. Now, let's discuss rib vaults. Rib vaults are crossed arch ribs, basically, in the ceiling. They arch across the roof to multiple specific points. So, you have a wall going down, and then the rib vault goes from one portion of the wall to another portion of the wall at a diagonal, or straight across either one, and then across to another one, and they'll crisscross back and forth. The areas between these ribs are filled with a thin metal or stone material. These rib vaults allowed for a higher walls and a more arched ceiling. So, when they combined the flying buttresses with the rib vaults, they allowed for a large amount of windows in the actual church, as well as the really, really tall ceilings, which gives Notre Dame its really specific gothic look. It also helped prevent the risk of collapse because it took a lot of the load out of those interior load-bearing walls and pushed it out and pushed it down instead of being directly at the top of the wall for the ceiling with the heavy uh, roof they now have pushed that load out to a secondary location where it's basically dividing the load and they've also pushed it down so you don't have as much of a risk of collapse and just to make things clear as mud, I'm going to list out and explain each portion of the completed cathedral. We're going to start with the west end since it is the main entrance. Located on the west end, as many of you will probably know because I'm sure everybody's seen at least one picture of Notre Dame, there are two towers. One is Isengard, the other is Baradur. Not really, but that would be super cool. The north tower is slightly larger than the south tower. They are each 226 feet tall and were the tallest structures in Paris prior to the completion of the Eiffel Tower. The North Tower is wider than the South Tower. It's not taller. It's wider. Slightly. It's barely noticeable at all. The North Tower contains eight smaller bells. These bells are named Gabriel, Anne Genevieve, Denis, Marcel, Stephen, Benedict Joseph, Maurice, and Jean-Marie. The South Tower contains the two large grand bells. They are known as Emmanuel and Marie. Both towers and the entire exterior of the building, basically, are made of limestone. They have wooden frames inside, but basically the entirety of the structure is made of limestone. So now we're going to move east into the building. After you get past the towers, and there's a couple galleries in the towers with paintings and stuff like that, you have the nave. The nave is where the main body of the church is. This is where the congregation sits during Mass. It is a large, it is flanked by two, 
two uh, aisles on either side with some square chapels on the exterior. The nave is 115 feet tall, which is where those flying buttresses and those rib vaults come in handy because that is an extremely tall building and it wouldn't be possible to have that much height and that much load that high up without those architectural advancements. Moving from the nave further east, next is the transept. The transept is the cross section of, well, the cross. Most Gothic and Romanesque churches and cathedrals were built in a cross shape. Makes sense. It's a church and the main part of the church is the cross and so they build their churches to look like a cross. The transept is the horizontal section of the cross, in case that wasn't clear. In Notre Dame, it's basically a big walkway between the altar and the choir and the nave. So there's the altar and choir on one side, the nave on the other. This transept stretches north to south. On the far east end of the cathedral is the apse. It is a semicircular area that contains the altar and the choir area. The choir area is self-explanatory. It's where the choir sits. Obviously, the altar is where Mass is performed. Now we're going to move up to the roof of Notre Dame. The roof of the cathedral was entirely made of lead. And that isn't like it was built of lead, like the trusses were lead. The actual covering of the roof was entirely made of lead. The actual trusses holding that lead roof up above the rib vaults were made of 13th century timbers. That roof structure was referred to as the forest. And if you look at pictures of it, which I will put up on my Twitter, it literally looks like a forest. It is just thick wood. As far as you can see, it's a tangled web of just wood everywhere. And then there are some other areas of the church that are smaller and aren't really as important, but those are the main parts that everyone knows. Now, there are rumors that Notre Dame has had, had a fire in the mid-1200s and had to rebuild, but I can't find any real solid proof of it. There's also some uh, evidence that it may have been set on fire by Viking raiders. During the French Revolution, it was ransacked by revolutionaries where they saw statues of kings from the Old Testament that they thought were French kings, so they beheaded them and destroyed the statues. And then the church was converted to a temple to the goddess of reason, and then it was turned into a wine warehouse until Napoleon came to power, and then he had himself crowned emperor in Notre Dame. It was used for various imperial functions, but was more or less neglected until the mid-1800s when the hunchback of Notre Dame came out, and it was then revitalized and rebuilt, and it's basically Notre Dame has had an up-and-down history since it was built 800 some odd years ago and then of course it burned now i want to give you guys an idea of how i'm going to approach this particular fire since this is an undetermined at this point fire i'm going to determine an area of origin then discuss potential competent ignition sources for the fire and then i'm going to give my personal opinion on what the cause of this fire was Remember, it's my personal opinion, not what has officially been declared as the cause of the fire. It is my 
opinion based on my fire investigation expertise, not the people that have actually been at the fire scene. But before we get into all that, let's discuss the sequence of events. It was April 15th, 2019. It was the last mass of the day on Monday of the week before Easter. The first fire alarm sounded at 6.18 p.m. A mass was actively going on, led by Jean-Pierre Cabot. In a building with the size and importance of Notre-Dame de Paris, there is a dedicated security system that is monitored constantly. It was ran by fire security company Elitis. There was a security guard sitting at the alarm monitor in the security room in Notre Dame. He was brand new to the job. It was only his third day. He was alone in a building the size of Notre Dame monitoring the fire alarm system. I, It's mind-boggling. Anyway, I'm not going to be too harsh on him for what is going to transpire because... He really shouldn't have been alone at that monitor already on his third day in a building as complicated as Notre Dame. It also wasn't entirely his fault. There were numerous issues with the fire alarm plan at Notre Dame. First, Elitis didn't actually have any employees on site at Notre Dame. He was in the building, but he wasn't in the actual, like he wasn't in Notre Dame. He was in a separate building. Well, that's a problem. Second, there were three different entities operating security at the cathedral. Elitis was off-site and reported any alarms to security guards on-site. But there's a caveat to that. If the alarm was in the towers, it went to a security guard employed by the Ministry of Culture. If the alarm went off somewhere else, it went to a security guard employed by the diocese. It's not hard to understand why this was needlessly complicated. He wasn't even reporting to somebody that he worked with. At least not worked within his company. It wasn't a coworker. It was just somebody that was with a different company. So if there was a miscommunication, it was harder to get to a common ground because you're working in two, well, at that point, three completely different SOPs, standard operating procedures for those that don't know. If you want to properly cover a single building and avoid false alarms or alarms that aren't false but are treated that way, it needs to be run by a single entity. I do not understand why they had three different securities, basically three different security systems running this one building. It's a terrible idea. Even if you just have two, if you have one security system in the building, you have security guards for one company in the building responding to reports from an outside security alarm system, that would make sense. What they had does not make sense. Next, Elitis employees had reported that over the past several years, smoke alarms would go off regularly within Notre Dame with no actual fire. They would report the alarms to their superiors, but nothing would change. So they just stopped reporting them nearly as often. And that's terrible. That I, I don't need to explain why security company employees deciding they don't need to report smoke alarms in an 800-year-old building is a bad idea. And then, this new employee, just three days into the job, was the only person on shift that evening. Even for an experienced security guard, one pair of eyes on an alarm system as complicated as Notre Dame is not enough. Which then leads us to the next issue. 
this security guard had never made a full tour of Notre Dame. He was in his third day manning the security panel by himself, but had never been walked through the entire building. That should have been a day one thing, but they never did it. He was basing every decision he made that evening on a partial tour. <laughs> oh, but it gets worse. This security guard had been on duty since 7.30 a.m. It is now basically 6.20 p.m. He had been at work for nearly 11 hours, and he was only supposed to work an 8-hour shift. But the guy that was supposed to be there for the evening shift never showed up. So he just stayed. It wasn't like he could just leave the security system completely unmanned. That would have been so much worse than it already was going to be. He was three hours past when he was supposed to be relieved. Tired eyes miss things. But that wouldn't be the only problem, and it's only going to get worse. So, like I said... The first alarm went off at 6.18 p.m. The alarm panel lit up the section that stated Attic Nave Sacristy, followed by a several-digit long code. That code was ZDA-110-3-15-1. Absolute gibberish to us, and probably to the security guard in his 11th hour on duty on only his third day. Now, let's break that down a bit. The alarm panel section that lit up said attic nave slash sacristy. The nave, as we've already discussed, is the large area where the congregation sits. The sacristy is a slightly separate building to the south of the cathedral where the priest gets ready and all his vestments are stored. They are not the same thing. They're sort of next to each other, but they are not even close to the same area. So, the security guard had to make a decision. Sacristy or Nave? He picked Sacristy. He chose poorly. But it's a choice he never should have had to make. The ambiguousness of this alarm is terrible fire alarm design. But the security guard sent the church guard. Different security system to the sacristy attic. He reported no fire. Obviously, we know now that the fire was in the attic above the nave. It's around 6.20 p.m. at this point, and they decided to evacuate the mass because they had a fire alarm that they were searching for, and they didn't have any reason for the fire alarm to be going off. So they evacuated everybody. Another church security guard asks the guard at the monitoring station to call his supervisor to ask for the meaning of the digits after the alarm label. At about 6.35 p.m., the mass goers are allowed back in the building. At 6.43 p.m., the supervisor for Elitis informs them that the code isn't for the sacristy, it is for the attic above the nave. That long code that I read off earlier was actually a very specific smoke detector in a very specific location in the attic for the nave. But how was the new guard on duty supposed to know that? He clearly had not been trained well. He hadn't even taken a full tour of the building that he's supposed to be protecting. So the security guard that was sent to the sacristy 
hustles it from the sacristy to the attic above the nave. The stairway from ground level to the upper attic of the nave is 300 extremely narrow steps. That's about seven stories. Once he finally made it and opened the door, it was too late. The fire was roaring. So he runs back downstairs. He gets about ah, halfway down the stairs, approximately, give or take, realizes he accidentally locked this door at the top of the stairs, which is going to be a problem if the fire department needs to go up there and put the fire out, which clearly they do. So he decides to turn back around, go back upstairs so he can unlock the door, and then run back downstairs. The fire department was finally called at 6.48 p.m. That is 30 minutes after the first alarm. And by that point, it was too late. There was no stopping this fire in the attic. With that much dust, debris, and open timbers available for consumption, it was going to keep ripping through the attic, no matter what anybody did. It was an impossible situation that this fire department was called into. It's really hard to put into words how quickly this fire would spread, especially given a 30-minute head start with absolutely no fire suppression whatsoever, no fire prevention, no passive fire prevention, which is basically firewalls. There were no firewalls in the Notre Dame attic. There were no sprinklers in the Notre Dame attic. It was a tinderbox. Once that fire got going, that, those dried oak timbers were the only way you could have made it go any faster is if you just poured gasoline throughout the entire attic. And I'm not even sure that would have helped. There would be so much dust, so much debris, and so much dried wood spread out across that entire attic. It's just going to boom right through the whole thing. In modern large buildings, and even in buildings as old as Notre Dame, there are fire-resistant walls and a complicated system of sprinklers. There are numerous cathedrals all over the world that are slightly younger, but similar in age to Notre Dame, that have fire-resistant walls, that have sprinklers in their attics, especially when they have those old oak timbers. That way, if you have a fire in one section of the attic, it is contained to that one section of the attic, rather than just allowing it to just spread through the entire thing. They had decided against fire-resistant walls and sprinklers because they didn't want to have to cut into the timbers and potentially ruin them, and it cost them. By 6.52 p.m., smoke was showing from the west side of the spire. It's likely that this was when the spire really became doomed. Not only was there a 30-minute delay in calling the fire department, in the lead-up to this fire, the spire and the roof were undergoing a renovation project. This meant that there was a significant amount of scaffolding all around the spire and the attic, much of which was wooden therefore adding excellent fuel to an already very well-supplied fire. By 6.55 p.m., the smoke was so thick that the towers were basically impossible to see. At 7.02 p.m., just 14 minutes after the fire had been discovered, but 45 minutes since it had first been alarmed, flames had breached the roof and were showing on the west side of the spire. 
The first firefighter showed up a few minutes before 7 p.m. They had a completely impossible task ahead of them. Save one of the most famous cathedrals on the entire planet. Pulling up beside the cathedral, it became impossible to tell where the fire was. The building was so tall. So, they made entry. Because, well, what else were they going to do? They hooked up to the cathedral's dry pipe system. As a quick aside, dry pipes are used in buildings with easily damaged items, most often in the event and the failure of the sprinkler system. So, basically, dry pipe systems don't have water in the pipes at all times. When a sprinkler releases, the air gets pushed out of that sprinkler, and then the water comes through. So, air pressure is keeping the water out of the system. It's used primarily in museums and other places that have a freeze risk in case there is a failure of the sprinkler system and stuff like paintings and whatnot that can be damaged while water aren't damaged. It doesn't really help. It's kind of like a mental thing for people because if the pipe was damaged, it you have maximum of a minute for water before water starts coming pouring out. So it's not really that helpful, but if it makes you feel any better, that's why they do it. Anyway, the fire department made their way up to some up the 300 some odd stairs to go walk into a literal inferno. The fire was moving rapidly across the roof in a western direction for a multitude of reasons. One, the roof was literally a wide open space of nothing but timber dried out over 800 years and dust. As a perfect fuel load. I can't think of a better fuel load. Second, the roof coverings were made of lead. Lead melts at 620 degrees. Temperatures within that attic reached 1,500 to 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. That lead melts at 620 degrees Fahrenheit. Make sure I say that. But the lead itself isn't the problem. It is a problem, but that's for afterwards. The problem is, the lead melting is allowing more and more oxygen to feed the fire further and further along the attic, and with the wind blowing to the west, it was pushing the fire rapidly towards the towers. If the fire reached those towers, Notre Dame was doomed, and everyone knew it. But we're not there yet. The spire is still standing. The attic had only just begun to show flames. Catastrophe was still avoidable. For now. The firefighters got to the attic, opened the door, and it was just a wall of flames. Floor to ceiling, side to side, nothing but fire. Melting lead, flaming timbers, just an absolute, the worst thing imaginable when you're a firefighter. Just a wall of fire in front of you. Because when you're a firefighter, they teach you to shoot at the seat of the fire. So you start out and you go and you try and hit the seat of the fire. But when you open the room and the entire room is fire, you just open the hose and pray that you hit something that puts it out. At that point, it's a lost cause, basically. There were 50 firefighters in the attic doing absolutely everything they could to control this space, but it was too far gone. At around 7.50, a deafening boom spread through the building. You remember how I said the spire was still standing? It was no longer standing. The 750-ton spire made of oak and lead collapsed down into the nave. 
it was so much weight and it caused such a large gust of air and explosion of fire, it shut every door in the cathedral. It sent a massive fireball hurtling through the attic. The only reason firefighters didn't die in the attic at that point was because most of them were standing behind a wall that blocked the fireball from getting to them, where they were also fighting fire, by the by. So it wasn't like they were out of danger. They were still trying to put this fire out. There's just a giant fireball that luckily blocked off by a wall that was thankfully still standing. After that, Paris's fire chief immediately ordered the withdrawal of every firefighter in the building. Obviously, a giant thing just collapsed, and at that point, who knows if the cathedral was even stable enough for anyone to be anywhere near it. So then, they really began fighting from the ground. Boats and engines were shuttling water from the Seine to trucks spraying from master streams, but they were getting nowhere. They weren't going to get anywhere. It was The roof was a lost cause from the moment it took 30 minutes to find the fire. And as they're doing that, the fire is getting closer and closer and closer to those towers. If the wooden beams holding up the bells and the towers collapsed, it's likely the whole building would go down with it. At 8.30 p.m., Paris Fire Chief General Jean-Claude Gallet told President Emmanuel Macron that the attic was gone. They could do nothing to prevent it from being consumed. The only thing they could hope to do is save the towers. He told President Macron they would know in 20 minutes if the towers would be saved. Back on the site, one of the dry pipes in the south tower was leaking, which made the water pressure too low to be effective. Because of course it did. The North Tower was clearly on fire at this point, which, as we have discussed at length, is a major problem. If they were going to save the cathedral, they were going to have to make some tough choices. Someone, or some group of someones, would have to go in with basically no way of knowing if they could get back out. Going in to save that North Tower was, for all intents and purposes, a suicide mission. They had no way of knowing how advanced the fire was in the North Tower. Hell, they may not have any water to fight the fire even if they could reach the North Tower. The South Tower standpipe was borked. One neighborhood team of firefighters refused. And really, I can't blame them. It was a suicide mission. One of those bells goes in the North Tower, they all go. The smallest one weighs about 4,000 pounds. You're going to tell me that that tower is going to survive a 4,000 pound bell dropping from that high up, it's going to bring them all down. And if they all go, everything underneath it, beside it, above it, is going down with it. That is certain death at that point. It is, that, that's just all there is to it. If one of those bells goes and you are in or near that north tower, you are unlikely to live through that event. Eventually, they found a group of firefighters insane enough to try it. They were led by Master Sergeant Remy Lemaire. Sergeant Lemaire had been in the towers earlier in the night. He knew it was dicey at best, but he volunteered. 
The group made entry on the south side of the South Tower and wound their way up the spiral stairs to the landing that would give them access to the walkway across to the North Tower, the lower walkway to the North Tower. That will become important later. Also, I want to point out, going up spiral stairs in fire gear with hoses and an air pack is absolutely the worst. So, I do not envy them for this. I have done it. It is awful. Your boots are so big it's hard to keep tread on the stairs. It's just terrible. But anyway, they get to the lower walkway. There, they take two hose lines that they carried up those spiral stairs with them, and they launch them over the front of Notre Dame, down to the ground, where they are then hooked up to engines to pump water up in to give them water that is reliable, because again, the dry pipe in the South Tower is jacked up, and they can't get to the dry pipe in the North Tower because North Tower's on fire. While they're dropping these hoses over, they get one hooked up, they then proceed to have to fight fire above them because the floor above them is on fire. They also have to fight the fire on the floor below them because the floor they are standing on is partially collapsed and also on fire. Miraculously, they succeed. And so they moved back to the South Tower and they go up a floor to gain access to the Bell Tower portion of the North Tower. So they go up the South Tower, go across the connecting part, over to the Bell Tower section of the North Tower. They go up the wooden stairs of the Bell Tower to spray the now burning supports of the Bells. The anxiety that they had to be feeling at this point is just overwhelming. The heat inside this building would be insane because all of that stone is just keeping that heat, that smoke, all of those hot gases inside the building. So it's insanely hot. There is, I mean, it's, it's rising up, but it's basically a giant oven. And the fact that the floor that they were just standing on, that they are now standing on, they had to put out a few minutes earlier, is uh, not great feeling at best and downright terrifying at worst. But they overcame it. They climbed the stairs up to the belfry of the North Tower, and there they began work on putting out the fires in the North Tower. Within 15 or so minutes, the fire in the North Tower was under control. There would be no collapse. The cathedral was saved, minus the roof. Over the rest of the night, mop-up operations were continued. Hot spots throughout the completely consumed roof and inside the nave were put out. The spire was gone, the roof was gone, but the towers were saved, and therefore so was the cathedral. And only one firefighter was injured and not a single other person was injured or killed in this fire. In some slightly better news about this fire, despite all of the destruction of the historic roof and the spire, early on, firefighters and other public workers formed a human chain to remove the relics and paintings from the cathedral as quickly as possible, while the building is actively burning. So they don't have water, they don't have any sense of protection or anything like that. It's just a long line of people 
handing things out of this building, searching the building, this gigantic building to find these priceless works of art and getting them out so that they're safe. Hundreds of priceless artifacts and paintings are removed from the cathedral before they could be destroyed, including a tunic worn by St. Louis and the crown of thorns believed to have been worn by Jesus during his crucifixion. The man who was at the very beginning of the human chain was the chaplain of the Paris Fire Brigade, Father Jean-Marc Fournier. He was in the building while it was burning and located the crown of thorns almost entirely by himself. And in another silver lining, just four days before the fire began, several statues were removed from the exterior of Notre Dame around the spire for renovation. Thus, they were safe and far from the building when the fire began. So, I want to go back into the fire protection of Notre Dame real quick. It was extremely flawed. Not only did we have all the security response problems, but we also have problems with the actual fire protection of the building. The fire protection was made under the assumption that if a fire started, it would burn slow enough that it could easily be contained. But what this failed to account for was that once the timbers started to burn, the dust and the timbers would rapidly ignite across the attic because of how dry these timbers were. It wasn't just, oh, they're really thick wood, they're going to burn really slow because they're so thick. That's only if you're counting them burning too completely nothing, like burning away. That's not accounting for, oh, this one ignites, and then that ignites this one, and then that ignites this one, and that ignites this one, and that ignites this one. They didn't account for that. They only accounted for one of the timbers burning completely through before it igniting another timber. And I don't know why they would do it that way, because I have never in my five years of fire investigation experience at this point seen a fire that was like, ah, I can't spread to that piece of wood until I'm done burning this piece of wood. It's a toddler with a cookie. I'm going to take a bite out of all the cookies, and maybe I'll go back later and finish burning them, or, you know, I'll just take a bite out of all of them and then be done. And the other thing is, if you listen to my episode about the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire, we talked about surface area. The surface area in the forest, which is the attic above the nave, was incredible. There was an incredible amount of surface area by sheer number of wooden beams used to build this roof. So it was going to go quickly. It's the sawdust thing. You have a pile of sawdust, you light it on fire on the table, it'll burn, but it won't burn real well. Take the same pile of sawdust, you toss it in the air, you stick a lighter in it, don't do this. Take sawdust, you stick, throw it in the air, stick a lighter in it, and it's going to burn your hand and probably your eyebrows and most of your hair, and you're going to be real unhappy. That's more or less what happened without the explosion in the roof of Notre Dame. And the other thing that's an issue is once these timbers get going, it takes a lot of water to put them out. The heat release rate on these timbers is astronomically high. And the higher that heat release rate, the more water you need to put it out. So once you get several of these timbers going, it's going to be an absolute pain to get these timbers out. Not to mention... You have to have the firefighters climb seven stories to get to them in the first place. 
and then wait for the water from the dry pipe system to actually get pushed through and through the hoses to be able to put water on the fire. It was poorly designed. And then, that's not even including, so there was a delay in this fire because they were sent to the wrong area, but that doesn't include the fact that there was a built-in delay already because the fire department wasn't automatically notified whenever there was a smoke alarm in Notre Dame. If an alarm went off, they sent a security guard to check to see if there was a fire first. So, say an alarm goes off in the attic above the nave. It takes several minutes to climb all those stairs to get up there, see if there's a fire, and then call the fire department. So you've got at least a 15-minute delay before you even get fire department on scene because you've got getting from wherever they are, so figure two or three minutes, up the stairs is give or take a five minutes, finding it in the attic, which is amazing in and of itself, so you've got another five minutes, so you're at 12 minutes, plus the three minutes response time from the fire department, you've 15 minutes, and then however long it takes the fire department to get geared up into the building and up the stairs, so you're looking at a 20-minute delay on a fire that you're sent to the right spot. That is poor, poor, poor planning. I have to be honest, I can't think of a worse place to have an active delay in response time in discovery of a fire than an 800-year-old cathedral. It's just, ah, it's mind-boggling. But let's move on. Now, where exactly the area of origin was is pretty impossible to determine without being in the building and viewing the fire patterns myself. I can give you a general area just from exterior photos and the few interior photos I've seen. The area of origin appears to be directly under or around the spire. This is due to a couple things. Number one, the first place we see fire really show up during, during the fire is around the base of the spire. It's not up in the spire. It's not further out in the attic. It's right at the base of the spire. And with the wind blowing to the west, if it had started further east down the attic, it would have made exit through the roof there and then spread across the roof that direction instead of coming out at the base or around the base of the spire. So that really puts our area, that really narrows our area of origin down fairly easily. There's not really a, a weakness point at that point where we have a reason for it to travel the length of the attic and then come out there. If it's burning straight up, it should come out right where it started, basically. We don't have an air draft in that attic, an air draft that would account for pushing it that far before coming out at that point. It would have to be a massive, massive draft for it to travel the entire way and then out the spire there and why wouldn't it continue on down and then go out further down it that just doesn't make sense the area of origin is basically the base of the spire in and around the base in the attic around the base somewhere in that general area as far as cause goes the paris authorities have ruled out arson which 
makes sense. It's a really bad spot spot to start an arson if you're trying to do maximum amount of damage. It's a good spot to start the fire if you're trying to do maximum amount of damage in a monetary way, but it's not the best place to start a fire if you're trying to do the maximum amount of damage in a visual, political way, if that makes sense. So let's talk about competent ignition sources. The first competent ignition source for this fire is an electrical failure. Within the spire, there were several electrical bell systems. A failure in one of these electrical systems could lead to the ignition of available combustibles. I tend to doubt this one. The fire first breached the actual roof and the area around the base of the spire. If a failure occurred in the electrical system for the bales, it would most likely be further up in the actual spire, not down in the base. So that tends to lead me to believe that it was not one of the electrical systems for the bales. It's possible, and I, I can see why they wouldn't rule it out, but for my personal opinion, I would tend to lean away from an electrical failure of the bells. The other possible electrical failure is the elevator system for the scaffolding for the re renovations. The elevators in the scaffolding were located approximately 210 feet from the base of the spire, which is a good distance and seemingly puts it far enough away from where the first flames were seen emanating from the roof. Workers also claimed to have turned the power off to the elevators at 5.50 when they left for the day. If the power was off, and they were in fact that far from the base of the spire, it would be difficult to reconcile the fire originating at the elevators and spreading in the way it did across the roof, and then first showing flames around the base of the spire. That leaves us with one other competent ignition source. Discarded smoking material. This is the one that truly jumps out at me, and I can remember watching it on TV back in 2019, which Mrs. Disastrous History can attest to because we watched CNN for hours while I stared at this fire spreading across this building and talked about fire spread and fire suppression and what they were doing wrong and what they were doing right and what the potential causes were. Anyway, this is the one that really, really jumps out and says, hey, look at me. There's a lot of evidence that this was probably a smoking fire. Back in 2015, a security guard for Leedus noticed that there was discarded cigarette butts all over the place in the area of the attic. And then there were also cigarette butts discovered on the scaffolding around the building in the aftermath of the fire. Now, the spokesperson for the construction company admitted that their workers would sometimes smoke on the site contrary to rules because it was against the rules to smoke on the construction site, for obvious reasons. But they also said, quote, If cigarette butts have survived the inferno, I do not know what material they were made out of, end quote. And I take massive issue with this because, number one, we know that discarded cigarettes start fires on a semi-regular basis. That's why there are fire-safe cigarettes, and there's been testing for years and years and years on cigarettes and starting fires. 
but it's very possible that cigarette butts survive the blaze on lower levels of the scaffolding. It's also possible that cigarette butts survive the blaze on upper levels of the scaffolding. There have been numerous occasions where I have been on fire scenes that were started by cigarettes where someone had placed the cigarettes on their deck and then had set a plastic bucket or something of that nature on top of it and the plastic bucket melted down and stuck to the wood and when I pried the wood up, a whole bunch of cigarettes were stuck to the plastic on the bottom of that that survived the fire. Also, it's definitely not a leap of logic to if you find cigarette butts on the scaffolding on the lower levels that weren't burned, it's probably possible, not even possible, it's highly likely that there were also cigarette butts higher in the scaffolding. The spokesperson also said it is impossible for cigarette butts to set even dry wood on fire. This is also a lie. And even if it wasn't, the scaffolding didn't just have dry wood. It would have had debris, leaves, trash, etc. that the cigarettes could catch on fire. If they just tossed it down, it's highly likely it could fall between a crack and ignite leaves or trash or whatever was sitting in that crack that it had blown in there during whatever they were working on or just over years and years of buildup. It's utterly laughable that they would completely dismiss this cause out of hand. I mean, it makes sense because their company could be found liable for starting a fire that destroyed an 800-year-old building. But, really, but that's not all. The timeline also fits for a smoldering cigarette fire. The last workers were said to have left at 5.50 and turned the lifts off when they left. That gives them time for last smoke break before they leave. About, I don't know, 5.30 while they're cleaning up. They light a cigarette up 5, 5.30, smoke it while they're cleaning up their tools, putting everything away, and they toss it as they leave, and it sits there and smolders for about an hour before finally being able to ignite whatever's nearby. Also, could have been any time during that day, because cigarette fires have been known to sit and smolder for a while. I've seen cigarette fires that smoldered for six, seven hours before they finally got going. It absolutely fits. But, like I said before, the official cause of this fire is still sitting at undetermined. But, looking at all the facts that we know right now, which obviously we don't, but based on the evidence that we have, it appears to me that someone was smoking and carelessly discarded a cigarette and burned down an 800-year-old cathedral. Which leads me to this point. Please, 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 please. Always extinguish your cigarettes properly. Put them in water. Put them in a metal bucket with full of sand. Make sure if you do put them in a metal bucket full of sand that you clean them out regularly because cigarette butts can ignite other cigarette butts if you don't clean it out regularly. The moral of this story is make sure you put your cigarettes out properly and know the locations of your smoke detectors at all times. So, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I'm sorry I've been gone so long. Remember, if you want to see photos of Notre Dame on fire, or photos of Notre Dame before the fire, in the attic of Notre Dame before the fire, you can follow me on Twitter, Disastrous History. It's 
disastrous H-S-T-R-Y. So, history without the vowels. You can also email me at disastroushistory at gmail.com. And if you want to, you can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or just email me and let me know how I'm doing. I hope you guys stay safe. Always remember, know the locations of your smoke detectors. And remember to check your smoke detector batteries.